90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm exhausted. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this time it was you that was on travel. I know. It was conference week, and we were in Phoenix, and it was very hot. <laughs> yeah, so that means it's time for GSA. Yay! Um, we'll try to, I'll try to make it super interesting. Um when we talk about it, because there was obviously some really cool talks. Uh, GSA happened a lot earlier this year because we actually got booted from Denver, which is where we have the conference every couple of years, you know, and uh, they double booked us, apparently. So GSA is happening. Wow. Yeah, like a month <laughs> earlier than it usually does. And in a place that we could get a conference hotel because you should never have conferences in Phoenix in September. <laughs> right <laughs> uh, we did have a tornado while we were there that was exciting oh did you get to see it no we didn't get to see it it was a little uh too far to the northwest but we were out in the middle of a ridiculous ridiculous storm that was associated with it the lightning was unbelievable yeah yeah it was uh and and the um <laughs> just like our our building at home here um during that we were having our alumni reception in the basement of the hyatt and the ceiling tiles collapsed and began pouring water onto the floor wow yeah and we're so used to it because our our building here at ou leaks as well that everyone literally just stepped to the side and kept talking and drinking <laughs> That sounds about right. Uh, I remember seeing pop-up tents set up over instruments in labs at OU because the roof leaked so bad. Oh, they're still there. <laughs> and, the, and that is literally what happened. People looked and were like, yep, and just went back to it. And they were, the hotel was freaking out. And we were like, this is the best group of people for this to happen to. You don't understand. <laughs> right. <laughs> what have you been up to since we haven't talked since you got back from London? Yeah, so... Uh, Went to London and taught a advanced Python course this time. Ooh. <laughs> so that was fun. That was a little bit different. Mm -hmm. uh, did not get to go to the Greenwich Observatory. I know you're probably pretty upset about that. <laughs> I was very upset. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We were pretty much across the street from it, but I assume because that's a touristy area and it's sort of late in season, uh, no admissions to museums after 4 p.m. Ugh. That's real sad. Real sad for you. It, it was quite sad. So I could see it. I could see the prime meridian. <sighs> that's that's rough. Next time. Yes. Next time I know and we'll plan an extra day. Yeah. Yeah. That sucks. But still, you were there. I was there. Yes. There was uh, one of the pubs had the the longitude on the sign. Oh, see, there you go. Because you were just a few seconds off the meridian. Oh, so close. Yeah. <laughs> In time and space. But, you know, oddly enough, uh, the town of Greenwich is actually Greenwich Mean Time minus one. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yes. You are kidding. This blows yeah. my mind. <gasps> Because I, I made some joke about it. I said, well, at least you don't have to worry what your offset from Greenwich is. And everybody's like, what? 
like, well, it's zero. And they're like, no, it's one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> that made yep. my day. <laughs> okay. Oops. So time zones and time is still hard. Uh, yeah, I know. I was in Arizona where they don't observe daylight savings time. So. Oh, yeah. That always mm-hmm. gets tricky. It is always tricky, especially at the airport. But <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We arrived like 10 minutes after we left and then got back, you know, five hours after we left. So. Well, it's uh, coming back from London. I landed about 90 minutes after I left. That's awesome. The coming back trip there is pretty sweet. Yeah, that was actually pretty easy. You know, stay up late and then sleep the whole plane ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was easy. Going over there was a little bit rougher, but not too bad. Yeah, it's it's yeah, it could be worse. Oh yeah. Yeah. So. Well, that's awesome. So now I've been uh, back here and working for a week, trying desperately to get caught up on things and getting some. Uh, some fun deliveries of some new instruments I'm supposed to be working on that we'll be talking about more in the future. But uh, uh, weren't you doing that the last time we talked? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I've got some uh, a lightning instrument, actually a prototype that's out in the yard. I sent a photo out on social media maybe a week or so ago now. That's awesome. And you know, I said as soon as we put a lightning instrument up, we don't get any lightning, uh-huh. which held for quite some time until this week. Until this week. We finally got two good storms this week. Nice. Nice. How did it perform? Uh, pretty well. A couple little things that we need to tweak and adjust. But overall, uh, there was some pretty amazing detail in some of the signal. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I was I was quite excited for a, uh, a salad bowl and a raspberry pie that I'm yeah. SSHing into from London looking at data. It wasn't too bad. <laughs> I love it. That's wonderful. <laughs> wonderful. I've definitely got to get one of those at field camp, but we'll talk about that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess this week's going to be sort of a, a summary of catching up on GSA, catching up on what's happened with us uh, yeah. before we dive back into some of the, the more technical topics next week. Yeah, exactly. I figure we'll start hitting it hard then. Um, we both are probably still in recovery mode a little bit. I definitely am after sleeping for four hours. Um <laughs> Oh, and uh, speaking of recovery mode. Oh, no. (laughs) So if you had completed the listener survey and have not received your stickers yet, Mm. there's a reason. Uh, All of those envelopes were temporarily lost in the move. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And so those have been found and will be going out. So if, uh, if you get a package of stickers and forget what they were for, Thank you for completing our listener survey. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I mean, that's embarrassing that you're just now unpacking the rest of your house. <laughs> no? Don't you still have some boxes that aren't unpacked? I do not. My husband is a monster. If it was not me, if it was only me, you're correct. <laughs> I would totally still have that. <laughs> no, no. He made me unpack within like three days because he knows me. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, pot, kettle, whatevs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have some questions for you because now over the last like couple months, you've done this teaching in different places. And I know you're a good teacher. And I always sort of, if people say, you know, like what makes a good teacher since I teach, um, I always think about people that can like learn from what they're doing. You know, you don't just do the same 
slide show every time you change it up you do all this stuff so it's like what have because I know you are a good teacher what what have you learned from doing all this teaching especially over the same subject I know this one was a little bit different but it's like what have you learned about teaching with different people in different places this interests me because my same classroom is the same one I've been in for five years so <laughs> right oh first of all thanks for the, the kind words. You're I'm welcome. glad that you're confident <laughs> in my teaching ability. I've seen it. It's um, good. <laughs> so I, I would say I've learned more about how to deal with different learning styles. Uh-huh. Okay. In a larger, less interactive class mm-hmm. where you have 40 students or something or more even, uh, in more of a traditional lecture setting, you don't get that kind of interaction as much. Right. Whereas in teaching an interactive programming course, <laughs> like they're either following along or totally not. Right. And you have to work with how different people conceptualize things, think about things. And it's one of those, we've talked with you know Greg Wilson before about computing is a very deep subject where you sort of need to know everything at once. Mm-hmm. So how do you pick what somebody needs to understand and pick the right level of abstraction to be like, well, don't worry about all this other stuff right now. Right. But understand this. I feel like I've gotten a little better at that. Maybe. Okay. Uh, I definitely learned some new Python things every time we teach. Oh, that's cool. From people specifically or just with you trying to help people learn? Mostly trying to help people learn, or somebody they'll be like, What does this error message mean? Like, "Hmm." oh, you really forked that one good. Uh, (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) So, so learning some of that, or they'll say, Well, I have this problem that I'm trying to solve. Well, I'm sure that Library X has a way to do that, but I've never done it. So, let's sit down and read the documentation together. Oh, okay, (laughs) gotcha. Interesting. Um, That is true. I think about like the software carpentry that I've taken and other classes like that. You know, I took this R class and I had to step out to teach. And so it was really pointless coming back, right? Because I missed an hour worth of stuff. And it is like you're just totally lost. So having to, you know, run around the room sweeping everybody up, that's got to be rough. Yeah. And I really encourage if somebody's like well i'll be here now but i've got a meeting from one to three are you sure you want to come back yeah like, i'm not saying that to be mean but it's not going to be pleasant <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> um and the other thing is uh not to pick on anybody in particular or any organization in particular that i've taught at uh, i would actually say this is worse in universities than in the corporate environment yeah of well, people yeah, saying this phrase of I have to go do my real job. <laughs> this doesn't surprise me at all because when you get to take a class and you're in a corporate environment, it's awesome because you're released from all responsibilities, right? Um, I know that feeling. <laughs> I signed up for every possible class when I worked in the corporate world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yep, see you suckers later. Emails on away message. <laughs> But especially with academics, like if they say, well, I'm, no, this is your real job. Learning and doing things better is your real job. That and if true. you really internalize Python and these data processing things that we're showing you how to do, 
you could save up to a day a week for the rest of your career. See, that's like, how you have is to that, sell it. <laughs> but it doesn't always sell. Then it probably uh, wouldn't save those people a day a week, even if they did master it. <laughs> potentially, yeah. Uh, so that's one thing that's been difficult, and I suffer from the I'm not going to leave anybody behind. Mm, yeah, gotcha. Thing, and so sometimes I have to say, okay, you know, we've got two students that are really struggling. I can't hold the other 22 up right now. Mm-hmm. And we'll, we'll talk over lunch or something like that. And right. if they say, well, no, that's my lunch hour. Okay, well, we had the option. Uh, yeah, you do what you can. Uh, so it's been a little bit of a struggle. The advanced course was kind of interesting and kind of fun, really. Because uh, we sort of presented a list. I mean, we there are some set things that we covered. And then on the last day of it, when I was teaching, it's like, okay, so here are half a dozen interesting topics that I think you all might find useful. And here's the three-sentence summary of each of them. What are we going to learn today? That's cool. And then it was sort of just on your feet. Like they made, they picked some stuff, and I said, okay, well, this is kind of all focused around building a library. So let's build a fake little library called like PetPie or something. Mm-hmm. And we're going to put some calculations in it. We're going to write some tests. It's going to make some plots. We're going to write image tests to test the plots. We're going to make it a package so other people could install it. Like We really kind of built a whole day around the stuff they wanted to learn. That's cool. And that's also nice as a student, too. Yeah, I think they enjoyed it, and I enjoyed it. It was a little bit off script, which is always fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. And exposing <laughs> that's how you learn from stuff though it's good mm-hmm. so, yeah especially when you say and we run this and it crashes <laughs> <laughs> that's the best though because that's well this will go into one of the um one of the talks that i went to at gsa too it was the same thing about it was someone who the session was very open. It was kind of a teaching-ish type session. But this person worked on reality TV shows, like big reality TV shows, and then started working on documentaries that were looking at scientists and stuff. And she was like, you know, what I didn't know and what no one else knows and what everyone needs to know is how much you all fail and are okay with it. And she said, you know, everything else in society – is pressuring you to be perfect, and if you don't, you know, people are quite literally committing suicide because of it, you know, and she said, you guys fail every day, and you do it with grace, and you do it with humility, and you just get back up because that's what you do. That's where you learn, and no one understands that about failure. It's such, like, a negative connotation thing, and that was really cool, I thought. Um, more people need to hear that, I think, and see, oh, yeah. and see it, you know? <laughs> So. No, I definitely agree. Uh, and, you know, we, we joked that I said, well, professional programmers, it's really like Google Stack Overflow copy and pasting. <laughs> Not totally true, of course, but th- there is a yeah. lot of. So how do I do this again? Why isn't this working? And, mm-hmm. you know, programming is 80% staring at the screen and cursing. <clears throat> Only 80 yeah, <laughs> you, you weren't in my intro programming class, obviously. 
<laughs> oh, that chicken's dot F90. Oh, I'll never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Just count these stupid chickens, computer. I don't get what's happening. <laughs> uh, sorry, flashbacks. Anyway. So what else did you see at uh, at GSA that piqued your interest? Well, um, you know, there was this other, I, <laughs> it was the 150th year, so we were in Phoenix, it was the 150th year after John Wesley Powell's expedition down the Grand Canyon, so there were a ton of Grand Canyon sessions, and then it is the 100th, um, so the centennial of Grand Canyon National Park as well, so there's a lot about that, but what was different this year, and I think different from other places where... You've also been, obviously, geologically interesting places are where GSA goes a lot, um, is that there was a, a native voice to the, the talks, and that was real interesting. Uh, there were some very uncomfortable talks um, where, you know, a park ranger was talking about the 100th anniversary and also the 150th anniversary, and then it was followed by um, a Native American tribeswoman who was from the tribe that lives at the bottom of the Grand Canyon still today. And she was like, you know, it's not a hundred years of anything. It's, you know, thousands of years. And it was very uncomfortable actually. (laughs) And I think it was good though. It was uncomfortable, but it was also good to allow that voice into this thing. You know, it's not like the Grand Canyon was discovered. It has been there for a couple million years. Um, Right. Yeah. (laughs) So it was, it was interesting. I just, I was glad to see that. There wasn't, unfortunately, there wasn't very many people in that session, but um, it was just an interesting thing to see and something that hasn't been, uh, hasn't ever been done before, I don't believe. Uh, the organizer, one of the organizers of GSA this year um, was Dr. Steve Simkin, and he's the man who helped us set up our native science class, you know, 15 years ago or whatever. Um, so it was a, it was an interesting group of people and some really interesting discussions around there but obviously there was lots of super cool science that went on too um (laughs) going with the whole there was a lot of people there that weren't geologists that were giving talks and I thought that was really cool but then there was another one here and I think this was an undergrad talk if it was it was one of the best ones I've seen um he might have be just starting his master's but this is like one of those lessons that we talk about on here all the time. And it was the student from um, ASU, which is in Phoenix. And he talked about this. He was just messing around on Google Earth and looking at the Phoenix area. And he saw these sort of scars on the side of some of these mountains that he had hiked on. And they were landslides. And so in Google Earth, as probably everyone knows because they do this every once in a while, you know, you can go backwards and look at different date stamps for the satellite imagery. And so he went back to where he couldn't see them, right? So the switch between it must have happened, you know, in this six months. And so, okay, he, yeah. yeah. And so he went around and looked at this for a whole bunch of places and found that they all basically centered on this one time period. So he pulls all the like precipitation gauge records and finds this huge storm uh that happened august 19th 2014 right in the middle of monsoon season right and it was this super intense storm that caused all this damage um 
it was awesome. Like, I mean, he knew intuitively that that had happened. He actually said that that was the first day of his first year at ASU. It was the first day of his undergrad. <laughs> and he skipped class because he his parents' house, I guess, was right near a lot of this flooding. And he wanted to go check out, like, what was happening. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty awesome. Um, but it's like, what a cool story and like what came out of this um not his work but what came out of that storm was that they put up tons of new stream gauges along all these failures that they had um (laughs) also some of the failures occurred quite near i-15 and other big roadways and instead of these arroyos so these dry riverbeds being inundated by this water and then carrying it away usually the roads were the lowest point. And so as soon as these big debris flows would hit the highways, they just traveled down the highways. Hmm, Okay. And so there were like miles and miles of debris flow that just like traveled down the highway and there'd be all these cars stacked up until it finally exited the highway. So uh, it was cool because like everyone knew that was a big storm, but he could go back and he started to, you know, he would measure the areas and could volumetric, figure out how big these landslides were and stuff you know using polygons and they did some structure for motion stuff and i thought that was super cool just from messing around on google earth you know now this kid free data free software exactly and it's like i don't know if this was i mean judged on the timing you know it probably is part of his master's degree so it's like that's awesome and he took those kmz's put them into arc measured the volumes of these debris flows. He was doing stuff with like the angles, you know, the angles at which you look at them to try to get the volumetrics to see how high the debris flows were. And then they were going out and field checking them to see how good their ArcGIS measurements were, which were pretty close on. So I thought that was neat. Nice. Yeah. That was one of them. It sounds like a inspiring talk. It was really good. He was an excellent speaker, um, but it was just... I like seeing that stuff that could have even, you know, arisen from citizen science. Um, And they're doing a lot of this stuff. I know you guys did this, I think, at Penn State, uh, where you had, like, the Earth, or your, like, data as art shows. You guys did that, right? Um, Not exactly there. Oh, you didn't? Like, Lamont did, though. That's right. There we go. All right. We talked to, I knew we talked to somebody that had done that. Um, So they did that at GSA this year, and they had an art show, and it was super neat. (laughs) Um, it was super cool. So it went along with, um, this education section and it was just fun. Like some of it was quite literally artwork done by geologists, but it would be hung next to a, just a graph, like a graph of data. And then some people would take graphical data and make it into some kind of weird visual, you know, and use that as art. Um, the best one, my favorite one was this rendition of Scotland's geology. So you take Scotland's geologic map and this woman cross-stitched it. Huh. Yeah, it was spectacular. <laughs> I was pretty excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. So so that was um that was neat. Um in the sort of that was kind of the poster session for this section that I watched and I cannot say her name um Marsha Bjornard 
Um, she's written a couple books, and she's kind of a she is a scientist, but she's also a science writer. Okay. And um, she talked about she had this great talk that was talking about the mythos and logos of science and saying how, and this is something I think we say a lot too, and that I definitely teach in native science about how taking out the mythos from science has turned people away from it. And it's okay to embrace some non-jargony language that might reach more people than sticking strictly to, you know, the jargon and the white coat objectiveness of science. Um, And she quoted a lot from Darwin and from Charles Lyell, who, you know, wrote a lot of the great um, geology texts saying that they didn't shy away from this um, and making your science more of a narrative and less of a cookie cutter recipe thing that most people might shy away from. That's how people think of science and they can't get, they just can't get emotionally attached to it. And it's okay to break down those walls of these people by maybe speaking in more comfortable easy to understand language and maybe making it more of a story and that more people should think about that when they're trying to get their science out there. I thought that was kind of cool too. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, we, we've talked about before the way that we present science in a paper is never how it actually happened. If you go talk to that author, Yeah. you know, you're like, Oh, they designed this elegant study and really it's like, well, we were actually looking at something totally different, but that didn't work out. <laughs> exactly. But this other cool signal showed up. Yes, it goes back to that failure thing. Like, tell the story of it because that's the, that's what humans, you know, evolved to do was to sit around and tell stories and that's how you shared knowledge. And so we should get back to that, was it? And I actually heard, it was interesting because I heard a lot of hubbub in general um, at the conference about how journals should be changing and i know we've talked about journals and like publishing and stuff on here before and so that was really interesting saying like the old printed journal of the past is truly of the past and we need to figure out something new to capture all this new science and to keep people involved because the old way is broken hmm yeah okay so it's not just changing like the review process it's changing the whole the whole shebang all right. Yeah. Like from open source to the way stuff is reviewed to, you know, who pays what and is this really the best way to do it? Um, I heard a lot of people talk, and this is super fun, about also about how we have to have a huge push towards changing the way posters are done. <laughs> And, in what way and i yeah I, so i don't mean like how the poster session is set up how it's not okay to have posters that are all text or even 80 percent text that posters should be graphical and like eye-catching and tell their story pictorially that's the point of the poster with minimal text and extras and so that was the, this is the discussion was, so where does the, you know, text and extras go? Is that something like there's a QR code and you just, you know, snap a picture of it and it's a supplemental that you can read if you're that interested? You know, I, obviously 
they want the author of the poster to be there to be able to tell that stuff, but that just the poster itself shouldn't be so, you know, textually centric, I guess. That's an interesting idea. I wonder if you could enforce that sort of with, a, you know, doing some basic analysis on a poster that gets uploaded to a conference website. Mm-hmm. And you'd be like, mm, your poster has too much text objectively. We do not accept it. Yeah. Go remove more text. Uh-huh. You know, surely, surely could. But I, I thought it was an interesting follow-up to LPSC this year because both my student and I both noticed just so many, and I know we talked about it on the podcast, so many unique posters. And then if you go, there's a link on LPSC's website. That's the Lunar and Planetary Science Conference. So there's a link on LPSC's website to, like, good poster habits that goes to, I don't remember what university it is, but also there's another link on there to the, it might even be the Planetary Society, how to make a poster. And it is there. They're like, use pictures. That's what people want to see. It should be mostly pictures, zero text. So it's like some people out there are getting the hint. Like, those... LPSC posters were amazing. And, uh, yeah, I thought that was, it was just interesting to hear random people talking about it, not just, you know, GSA organizers in general. Right. So Hmm. people are sick of it. Like, it just, you can't make it through. There's just so much science out there, right? (laughs) Like, there was, it's not AGU, but there were still, you know, three or 400 posters a day. And three hours in the official poster session. So how are you going to like meet with the person and get the story and do all that stuff when you got to stand there and read it? And I don't know. It was, uh, that was really interesting and it'll be interesting to see how this evolves. Um, just as we go through the next couple of years, it just feels like we're on the precipice of some, some change in that manner. Yeah. And, you know, I would also love to see, uh, some conferences, get rid of the you're not taking pictures in the conference that was not a paid segue but thank you because gsa got rid of it this year oh (laughs) all right yes (laughs) so when the call for abstracts went out they had a little spiel about it but then they again had it you know before when it said when coming to the meeting and as you prepare your talks Um, please use this graphic. And it was just a little camera, you know, with the international no thing through it. And it said, if you don't use this, it's going to be completely assumed that you're okay with people taking pictures of your slides and your poster. Well, and I don't even think that should make a difference because, I mean, I I have had one very bad experience where I was, there was nobody near a poster. Mm -hmm. I was interested, but didn't want to stand there and read (laughs) Mm -hmm. um so i was gonna take a picture and the author saw that and came running over there screaming at me man (laughs) and i said well this is hanging in a venue you're here to present it to share that knowledge Mm -hmm. if you're not okay with somebody taking a picture of it then you should don't submit the abstract correct you shouldn't have it up which is essentially what gsa's spiel read that makes perfect sense and also if you're afraid of getting scooped i mean come on everybody's got other stuff to do than scoop your research yeah or you know just work faster if you're afraid of it or that 
And I actually only saw one poster. And I went to talks and visited all the posters because I psychotically cannot let myself ever relax. Um, so it's like, you know, I was there from start to finish every day. And of all the things that I heard or looked at, only one poster had that on it. All right. Yeah. That's that's progress. Mm-hmm. I thought you would be very excited about that. I'm glad you brought it up. <laughs> yes, and that was not seen on a note sheet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> totally. Uh, this is what I love in class. I'm always like, I didn't pay to have that person ask that question, you guys, but here's this next slide. <laughs> right. <laughs> that perfectly does that. Um, let's see. There was, there was a lot of great stuff. I mean, my stuff included, I'll just say. <laughs> Well, of course. Of course. Um, but there was one more. Since you've done so much work on magnetometers lately, there was this awesome talk um, by Tarduno, who's this pretty famous paleomagnetist. But he's different than the rest of us because he looks at ancient field intensity. Okay. So right. the s- total strength of the magnetic field? Yes. Okay. And he works in super deep time. And he gave this talk on the Edicaran, which is Precambrian. So the Precambrian strength of the field. And this is really old stuff. It's so old that it's hard to find rocks of these ages. And they have this little magnetometer that has, you know, it's got this tiny little sample chamber. And it's got these very sensitive squids and they're doing magnetic remnants on <laughs> magnetite, like needles of magnetite in single feldspar grains. Wow. Yes. They're doing that. And then they're doing, um, they can get magnetic remnants and some zircons too. That have sort of these iron bearing mineral inclusions. That's quite impressive. It's super impressive. So they had samples from the Jack Hills in Australia, which are some of the oldest rocks on the earth, you know, three something billion years old. And they're putting these into these tiny magnetometers to talk about the strength of the magnetic field and what that means for how the, um, you know, geodynamo changed over Earth's lifetime. Right, because then you start having a long enough signal period to... Yes. To say something. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and this was, he says, this was part of a 2019 Nature Geosciences survey they did. Um, and that what came out of this, which is really cool, was that the Edicarid field was 10 times um, weaker than the modern field was. And they think that right before um, the, the geodynamo nearly collapsed. Yeah. So thousands of nanoteslas instead of tens of thousands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if it had collapsed, we Earth would have been nuked by the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Basically. Would have been a much different story. Mm-hmm. And it said that um, that near collapse happened right sort of before significant growth of the inner core. And so since you had inner core growth, it was enough to basically keep the geodynamo going. And then subsequently ramp it up to its sort of present day field strength. Hmm. Yeah, that was 
awesome. So it's basically like atomic magnetometry. All right. 4.2, I have a note in here, 4.2 billion year old zircons that have remnant magnetizations. That's um, amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> that was super cool. Um, so yeah, that was that was really fun. And that's kind of the, the highlights of what I saw. It seemed like that there was a lot of big picture themes um, that were presented, which may just be, you know, what I chose to go to this year. But uh, it was it was really good, and it was kind of cool to feel and see just science evolving. Like, hey, you know, this isn't the way we should do this anymore. Let's change it without everyone being like, oh, no, that's dumb. But everyone was like, yeah, okay, what's next? So what do we do now? It was cool. This makes me think I really need to come to GSA some year. <laughs> yeah, you do. People are so much more happy, happier at GSA than AGU. <laughs> I just, yeah, it's, it's, AGU is such a large draining conference. It really is. There's just so much stuff and it's, yeah, there's so much stuff over such a broad field and AGU is such a, I don't know, GSA is like the younger hit brother that's, you know, spending his life in Birkenstocks leading being a river rat or something <laughs> like that's what it feels like <laughs> but there's still a lot of great stuff that's going on so yeah yeah it's fun you should try it out next year it's in Montreal <laughs> oh wow yes yeah yeah so we'll see we'll see what it comes next but it was really great I'm super tired <laughs> but yeah <laughs> I really want to follow up on a lot of these notes that I made and I had a lot of great networking the older i get the more people i know there and it's kind of fun and to see these people that you only see you know once or twice a year and i think i set myself up on 10 different sampling trips for the next four months so um yeah i'm sure you'll hear about that on here too <laughs> all right yeah well i think with that uh, we'll move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show fun paper friday yay so you picked out this paper, uh, which was amazing. Uh, it's from Physics Today, which is a journal that I just love. Yeah, I it's know like light know. reading for physicists. Yep. <laughs> uh, and it's so it's from the January issue of this year. Mm -hmm. Dandelion seeds are optimized for wind-based travel. This is so cool. So I I scanned this in old school style <laughs> as soon as I got it because I knew we were definitely gonna want to talk about it and that's hilarious that you say like fun reading for physicists because I've totally left this journal in the bathroom and been yelled at and been like what is this <laughs> yes and it is a real scan because you have I mean I, I see the address and everything <laughs> see, exactly, on the cover exactly <laughs> but this is super neat I mean I, I said it in class today, you know, meteorology degree is $50,000 to be summed up in air axis of fluid. And that's exactly what this is. These people serendipitously got together and you had a mathematical modeler and a fluid dynamicist and then um, somebody that does sort of plant biology, really, and looked and at... And a microfabrication oh, expert. there you go. That's who it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. And said, why do dandelion seeds fly? And it turns out it's this weird that was only theoretically thought to exist type of vortex that they create as they're falling through the air. Yeah. And so 
biologically, you know that a plant wants to get its seeds as far away from it as it can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Less competition. Yeah. Uh, so they've come up with all kinds of ways to do this, and a lot of them have been studied. But I always thought a dandelion seed, uh, a dandelion seed works like a parachute, and that's what these folks thought too. Right, and apparently that's what everyone in plant biology thought, but that's not it at all. And that has to do with how when something is falling through the air, the little eddy that you kind of can imagine in your mind that gets formed in the air above it works a certain way with a parachute. (laughs) And they assumed that about this dandelion seed, but because the dandelion seed has these fibrous things And it's not like a parachute, which is kind of relatively impermeable, but these fibers let air flow through it. And that vortex, instead of being connected to the top of the parachute, actually in the dandelion seed floats above it with this layer where the flow is zero right in between the vortex and the top of the dandelion seed. Yeah, and that's really weird because if you think about a solid surface like a parachute or the wing of an aircraft or the ground... (laughs) By definition, the velocity has to be zero at that interface. Exactly. Air is not going into or coming out of the material. (laughs) Well, if you're doing it right, it's not. (laughs) Yeah, so that's how you get these attached vortices. And on a parachute, I mean, it seems like a simple thing, but if you do the fluid dynamics wrong, this vortex can actually detach. It becomes unstable and detaches. Right. And a new one starts forming, and you get an oscillation that in very short order just rips everything apart. Right. So you don't want that. And they don't see that, and they, they don't see that kind of oscillation in the dandelion seeds. So essentially, the dandelion has engineered its seeds to create this, um, this vortex, which they call a uh, separated vortex ring. I mean, nature engineered it to work this way, which is crazy. <laughs> And it's relatively sensitive. Like they said, you know, this was theorized, but presumed that it probably never could exist in the real world because it would be too unstable. Mm-hmm. Yep. And now they've got it. Um, oh, gosh. It's so it's so cool. And like so many things like this, it seems super elegant, right? Way to go, nature. Um, <laughs> so they talk about, you know, they, they did some pretty cool... Um, pretty cool photography i thought you would be excited about too and laser work (laughs) as well yes no high-speed cameras but (laughs) yeah that's true but it was really neat though you know smoke particles in this wind tunnel and then lasers so they could sort of take um cross sections of the vortices as they were creating them as they were dropping these dandelion seeds essentially um and they made little fake dandelion seeds to see if they could do that right Yeah, so they built a little vertical wind tunnel, and then they would drop the seed or the fake seed in and play with the speed until it floated stationary, then injected a little bit of smoke and used a plane laser, so a laser that sheet, to, like you said, take a cross-section, which is so cool, because in meteorology we always said, well, imagine if you could take a cross-section. Here you're there taking a cross-section of the local atmosphere. (laughs) Exactly. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And these uh, artificial seeds were manufactured using like a, a photographic technique, mm-hmm. so photolithography. Mm-hmm. And with rocks, we talk about, oh, it's 30% porosity. Wow. 
Uh, right, yeah. So the dandelion seed is 92% porosity. That's crazy. Roughly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more porous it is, the more stable the vortex that's generated is. If it's less porous to becoming something like an impermeable plate, the Reynolds number cannot be as high before it becomes unstable. Remember, the Reynolds number is like that ratio of inertial to viscous forces. Right. So the inertial forces remain roughly the same because gravity. (laughs) Uh, the, The viscous forces, though, change with the speed of the wind. So you have to fall much more slowly with a high or with a lower porosity. Right. Uh, but these things, they've really engineered themselves to where it would be hard to naturally make them any more porous, but if they were much less porous, they would be unstable because they operate at a Reynolds number of like 400. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is... So that's super cool because it's maximized like the dandelion seed is maximized to do this and i thought this was really weird language it says it could hardly be any higher right (laughs) in there you know i thought that was really interesting but it's like that hammers home that point like that um sweet spot of how that works because as they say in here it this is essentially a new mechanism for flight that we didn't know about it's not new but something we didn't know about yeah, and there there is an animal that they talk about in here that just has sort of these, instead of wings to flap like a fly, mm-hmm. uh, just sort of these little hair things that look sort of like dandelions that they flap. And mm-hmm. the, the thing that really blows my mind is if you took a uh, an equivalent size disc, it does not produce nearly as much drag as this does because of the interaction of the airflow around all of these, and then the creation of that separated vortex, this is more effective at creating drag than, like, a parachute. <laughs> Even though it has 92% porosity. <laughs> so maybe we should make these for parachutes. Um, <laughs> maybe, but, I mean, hmm. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if you'd ever actually come down. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. I was like, doesn't that kind of defeat the, the purpose? Of the parachute's meant to get you to the ground. <laughs> but, right. I mean, I guess if you wanted to, you know, hang out and spy for a while, it's probably a good idea. Yeah. So, yeah. If you wanted to take some recon photos as you were flying down. Yeah. This is a quick way to do a overview of your field mapping site. Oh, man, that'd be great. <laughs> And then just have to get picked back up by an airplane on the way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, this was super cool. I really hope somebody builds little drones that fly like this just so you could watch it sit there and do its thing. Well, and you know, building a little vertical wind tunnel to do this in where you can make things float, as light as these are, a computer fan and a piece of clear pipe from the hardware store, probably about all you need. Yeah, I was going to say that... Um, the normal way of doing this, you know, reversing a shop vac is probably too much. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh. Totally doable. Just like some of these other experiments we were talking about. And that's awesome. Like, a totally new way of flying. And also, like, how do you... Uh, like, uh, when was this idea hatched? 
Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> when did these three people get together? And what were they talking about? <laughs> that made this research happen. It's true. It's not something I ever would have thought of looking at. I feel like it's like they're in the hallway and like chatting about the weather and somebody said something about how many dandelion seeds were in the air and then they're like, you know. <laughs> and now they have this, you know, incredible new discovery. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so as many fun papers, it appears maybe slightly silly, but yeah. then has uh, some pretty real world implications. Yeah, big ones. All our airplanes are going to have hairy wings now. That's the implication. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, if you do build a small wind tunnel to do drag tests on dandelion seeds or seeds of any type, we would love to see those results. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Absolutely. Send us those to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Uh, you can tweet us your dandelion seed wind tunnels and appropriate um, aerodynamic features of them at Don't Panic Geo. I am at Shannon Doolin. John is at Geo underscore Lehman. Uh, you can hang out with us on the Slack channel. We're on the Software Underground, the Don't Panic channel. And as always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. Since John unpacked his stickers, we'll get you stickers if you'd like them. <laughs> And if you want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash don't panic geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 